So hello and welcome to today's WC Conversation. I'm Patrick Earl, Economic Development Officer with Wheatland County. We are here today with Deanne Bernard, Executive Director with Rural Development Network. Uh, Deanne is an inaugural Executive Director of the Rural Development Network, for, formerly known as the Alberta Rural Development Network. Deanne has over 15 years experience as an executive director and has spent the, uh, over 25 years working in rural Alberta. With this experience, Deanne leads the RDN, helping smaller communities navigate the landscape of rural development in areas such as building affordable housing, addressing homelessness, increasing immigration, supporting agri-food initiatives, and finding solutions to big issues such as transportation and community sustainability. The RDN has a vested interest in seeing communities thrive, not just survive, and as well positioned to assist them through complicated processes. Deanne has a Bachelor of Science and a Master's of Science from Simon Fraser University. She's worked for government, private industry, and not-for-profits in her career. And with that, I'd like to invite you, Deanne, and uh, tell us more about the Rural Development Network. Thank you, Patrick. So I'll just launch into a little presentation and then we can have a discussion. So in every community, there are essentially three pillars, economic, social and environmental. So today we're going to focus on how the economic and social pillars are interconnected. So how you can't be successful in one area without working on the other. Essentially, unaddressed social issues can and will impede business attraction, growth and investment in our rural communities. If we want our rural communities to thrive and not just survive, we need to stop ignoring social issues, look them right in the proverbial eye and understand and address them in a holistic and effective way. Addressing social issues can actually spur investment and create opportunities in communities. Today, we're going to take a look at how that can work and explore a few ways communities are using to tackle some of those barriers. But first, I do want to start by telling you a little bit about the RDN. So some of you know us as the Alberta Rural Development Network, but we recently rebranded re just last month and we're still transitioning to our new identity. The ARDN was created in 2009 through a voluntary partnership of Alberta's 21 public post-secondary institutions. I always like to say it's the one and only time they all voluntarily agreed to work together. Um, but we are a arm's length not-for-profit organization. So people often wonder how we're funded. Initially, we had a $5 million fund from the Rural Alberta Development Fund, but that ran out in 2014. So now we pay the bills by applying for project-based grants and by doing fee-for-service work. Nobody gives us core funding. Since we started, we've been committed to addressing issues in rural communities at the local level. We're a key resource for rural communities to work together on issues that are generally under-addressed, so we look to fill gaps. We offer development and other services and equip communities and community-based organizations with the tools, information, and expertise that can help jumpstart the projects their communities need. The RDN's primary initiatives are dedicated to supporting communities in addressing their needs for things like affordable housing, preventing and ending homelessness, attracting and supporting newcomers, increasing access to services, and since we merged with the Agriculture and Food Council last year, developing agri-food initiatives. 
Our work includes advocacy on broader issues, and we work closely with others to bring attention to rural issues, foster community revitalization, and improve the quality of life for rural Albertans and now for rural Canadians as well. So one of ARDN's, and I still want to say ARDN, key programs is the Sustainable Housing Initiative. In 2015, we launched a call for expressions of interest to see if rural communities needed affordable housing. 35 communities said yes. They said they needed affordable housing, they just didn't know how to develop it. They needed to know how to access funding, they needed to understand how to navigate the very complex process of building affordable housing. So what do you get when a passionate volunteer convinces the Alberta Real Estate Foundation to invest $25,000? Well, you get the Sustainable Housing Initiative, which ARDN uses to help communities develop affordable housing that will be financially sustainable. In 2018, we launched our step-by-step -step guide to developing affordable housing. Part of the reason we created this guide is that we saw communities paying way too much money for work they didn't always need. With this guide, they can do things for themselves if they have the capacity or if they have to hire someone else, at least they understand the whole complex process, what's really needed and approximately how much it should cost. RDN also works on rural homelessness. So as a sidebar right now, if your community needs money to address homelessness due to COVID-19, we have a call for proposals out, so look for that. So rural homelessness, ah, yes, uh, people think it doesn't really exist, um, but it does. It's a hidden problem. It's not what you see in urban areas, like people sleeping on park benches and in the streets. It's people couch surfing, living in abandoned buildings, camping in the bush, living in their vehicles, having too many people to a building, all sorts of things like that. So it's really hard to gather data on what the rural homelessness problem really looks like. And when there's no data, that suggests there's no problem. And if there's no problem, there's no funding. And if there's no funding, there are no supports and services. So we have a problem. So we realized that there's a lack of data on homelessness in smaller communities, and we wanted to work with communities to change that, to estimate their homelessness situation. But how can we do that? We had to find a way that was cheap, efficient, and reliable because we know capacity is limited. So RDN launched a step-by-step -step guide to estimate rural homelessness to help communities gather the missing data to identify the gaps and attract investment. We also launched an interactive database to display the data we collected. So right now, we are working with 28 communities across Alberta using this guide to collect the data required to highlight the need for housing and services for the most vulnerable people in our communities. Our last homelessness survey in 2018 found approximately 3,000 people in 20 communities to be in unstable housing situations. 30% of those people were employed and 13% were employed full time. So that really blows the stereotype of why people are homeless. But the reasons were also diverse. Um, we saw in places like Banff and Canmore that they had the most fully employed people in need of housing. While in the MD of Greenview, they reported the greatest number of people who had no source of income at all due to the economic downturn. It's really important for us to know who, how many, why, and where people are facing homelessness. 
The RDN also has a rural immigration initiative, and this was created in response to the emerging needs of rural communities, as well as to respond to new programs that have cropped up to attract and retain skilled immigrants to smaller communities. This initiative takes a holistic approach to supporting both the communities and the newcomers to help them enable successful settlement and integration. This approach in particular really highlights the interconnectedness of economic development and social issues and how you can't have one without the other. So the overall goal of this initiative is to expand community capacity to support rural immigration and to increase the supports for newcomers. By supporting rural immigration from both the community's perspective and that of the newcomers, we can increase retention, decrease tensions, and create better outcomes for everyone. The result will be increased economic development. We do this by engaging with rural communities and immigrants to better understand their needs and issues, providing education and training for service providers so they're better equipped to deal with both the needs of newcomers and the concerns of the community. And finally, we help coordinate efforts to create welcoming communities, because no matter who you are, home is where you feel welcome and wanted. So we've talked about a number of different approaches and initiatives and projects that the ARDN does. But now I wanna share some examples that can show how everything, especially in a smaller community, is interconnected and interdependent. The economy and social well-being, along with the environment, are foundational and interconnected and need to be considered together. Community sustainability and quality of life can only be achieved by investing in all three. Social issues impact economic development and economic development will not succeed for long if social issues are ignored and neglected. And of course, environmental issues impact both. We believe that a community that addresses its social issues along with its economic and environmental ones will grow and thrive in the long term, in part because it will be able to attract and retain happy, healthy, well-adjusted and productive residents. So the first example, the issue is no data, no need. So we've talked about a lack of data um, or in some cases, poor data. Um, and what you see right now makes it look like there's little need for affordable housing, um, either because there's a lack of data or because the data that exists is misleading. Um, it says there's vacancy, um, but the vacancies that are available are not appropriate. But when you don't have affordable housing, you may have industry that would love to come and establish in your community, but there's nowhere for their workers to live, so they look elsewhere. So we know that communities need affordable rentals in order to support um, increased industry. In 2017, the federal government launched their national housing strategy, which is a $55 billion fund committed to providing a home to every Canadian by 2030. The goal is to move everyone along this housing continuum that you see. As you might be aware though, it can be difficult to prove the financial viability of an affordable or social housing development due to the lower rents and their effect on the bottom line but we can create mixed market developments that will ensure the viability of these kinds of housing projects. What that means is that within the same building, we create some affordable rental housing units, some market rental units, and maybe some commercial spaces. 
The profit from the market units and the commercial spaces can be used to subsidize the affordable housing units, making it self-sustaining. And if rent is directly related to income, people don't even have to move just because they're making more or less money. We just change their rent accordingly. So we don't create ghettos. All kinds of people live in the same building. So that might seem like a one-way benefit, but it's really not. The economic side of our communities, the businesses, industry, entrepreneurs, and infrastructure directly benefit from social development like schools, transportation, affordable housing, supports and services, etc. So here's an example. We talked about Banff earlier and how it has a lot of people who are employed but can't find a place to live. So we partnered with the YWCA Banff to create the Courtyard Project, which is being built right now. This is a three-story project, features 33 affordable housing units and can accommodate about 78 people. It's a beautiful example of how we can support um, the least advantaged people in a community by giving them really nice affordable housing. So the next issue or example is another lack of data. Um, the lack of data makes it appear that there's no homelessness in rural communities. And of course, if there's no homelessness, there's no government funding. So the perception of no need is really just due to the lack of data because we know there is homelessness. If you don't have any homelessness or data, um, you don't have any money um, and we really need um, that money to come from governments to support the supports and services that can be used to attract business or even get more people to move to your shrinking community. Um, so how does having data affect the community or economic development? Well, you think maybe it's mostly government investment, um, but I'm going to give you a really interesting example here. So one of the communities we did a, an estimation in and back in 2018 was Conklin, which is a tiny little hamlet in northeastern Alberta with only a couple hundred people living in it. But our estimation showed that a third of their population was living in unstable housing situation. Well, this became newsworthy. We put out a report, the local media picked it up, and Synovus Energy, who you may have heard of before, uh, they read about it and they wanted to act. So the impact was that they decided to invest $50 million to build affordable housing in six northern communities. Um, they specifically picked Conklin because of what they learned from our data collection. So this was a huge investment by a private company because of data. The other thing that happened was because of all of this, the re regional municipality of Wood Buffalo donated land for to, to build affordable housing on. And in a more general sense, we're receiving more dollars for rural and remote homelessness from the federal government. So another issue, and I talked about rural immigration, um, we know that many rural communities are experiencing population decline or at least stagnation. There are often workforce shortages and this is due in part to the aging rural population. But all of this leads to community decline, but immigration can actually turn this around. And this is why rural communities should care, should care about attracting newcomers. I have some successful examples of communities that have embraced significant levels of immigration 
And they're communities of all sizes, ranging from Brooks with about 15,000 people all the way down to Ontario, Alberta, which probably no one has ever heard of, with a population of about 26 people. So in Brooks, the population has increased by nearly 6% over the last five years, largely due to immigration. It's known as the city of 100 hellos and is now one of the most ethnically diverse small cities in Canada. Morden, Manitoba, in 2012, their municipal government launched a program to attract skilled immigrants. Since then, the region has had the fastest growing population in Manitoba at 20%, contributing almost a quarter of Manitoba's overall population growth. A really small local example is the community of Wabaman, um, some newcomers came in and saved two businesses that would have otherwise closed. So the community is absolutely thrilled to have them there because they still have a gas station and a recycling depot because of newcomers. And then the tiny example of Ontario. Well, this is a really exciting one to me. Um, they were losing their school. Uh, they had less than 40 kids in the school. The, the uh, enrollment was declining. Then in 2014, they got a new principal. Um, he decided to embark on some community consultations. The community wanted an agriculture focus, so that led to the school creating a school farm. The school farm enlisted community mentors to help the students with various aspects of the farm. The farm actually started to make money. Having a farm, school farm, drew more kids to the area and to the school. There was a local farmer who would employ lots of single temporary foreign workers who would come and go. He was convinced to start bringing in families that would be staying because of the farm program, because of the school. They, they're more and more coming and staying. So the community is actually growing. And in six years, the population of the school has doubled. If a tiny, tiny little population school like that or community like that can do it, you know, can't any community really embark on some kind of revitalization program? So if your community is interested in attracting and retaining newcomers, there's some things you need to ask yourself. Are there jobs in your community that could be filled by newcomers or immigrants, both those arriving from other countries and those choosing to move within Alberta or Canada? And are newcomers even aware of those opportunities? Are other immigrants living in the community? This is often a significant factor in a newcomer's decision to settle or leave a community. Communities with immigrants, such as Brooks, are able to attract more newcomers through informal community networks. Are there settlement supports, resources, and services available to help the newcomers integrate? Are there affordable, appropriate places for people to live? Are there transportation options? And that doesn't have to mean transit. And finally, Will the community and employers be accepting of newcomers and how can you make that happen? So those are some examples. Um, I needed to go through this pretty quickly, but I want to finish off and bring it all together by re-emphasizing how we must address social issues if we want our economies to survive. Social issues can only be adequately addressed if our economy is healthy. And although we didn't talk about the environment, having a nice, safe and healthy place to live affects everything. So I believe that addressing all three aspects, social, the economic and the environmental, is really the key to revitalizing our rural communities. And that's my 
trying to rush through a really big topic um, so we can get to some discussion. Great. Um, thanks, Deanne. Um, yeah, um, so I was I was wondering, like um, with us uh, in Wheatland County, we're obviously quite rural. Um, we do have uh, a number of uh, hamlets and there's even small villages that are self-governed within the county as well as the town of Strathmore. Um, so th there has been a lot of um, um, discussion, I know, uh, on particular levels, especially on regional conversations. Um, and because we do economic development, or that, that's what I do for, you know, the, uh, the day job, is um, one of the one of the things that we find that we're challenged with it. Well, there's two. There's a few things, but um, we're we're talking uh, a lot lately about um, agricultural labor, and there seems to be a, a demand for that, and um, it's a challenge um, in a lot of cases with some of our farms. Uh, usually, in something that's not so much on the commodity side for crops, but more on sort of that more high density stuff. So there's a lot more labor intensity on those types of operations. Um, and we've had um, obviously some constraints with the foreign worker program and such uh, in our region, but we also have the ability to, to work with pulling um, uh, labor in from Calgary you know, on the western side of the county. On the eastern side, it gets a lot more challenging for distance, but um, just wondering if, um, if you've looked at agricultural labor and those types of pressures in, in your work? Well, I think the Alterio strategy is really good. I mean, it's one thing to bring in people who are just going to be there to do the job and then leave. Um, in a more ideal situation, especially in light of things like COVID where they shut down the borders, it's, it's much more ideal to have people who live and work locally. And I know that can be a challenge because um, the work is seasonal, but there might be other jobs available for people to take up um, in the off season. And or if you bring in a, a family, um, the spouse might have a job. And now with people really understanding how they can work remotely, um, there's a lot more opportunities for people in the off season or for spouses to have jobs, even if they aren't specifically jobs in the community. So I think if we really want our communities to grow, we have to stop thinking so much about having these transient people come and go, but think more about attracting people because we want them to live in our community and contribute to our community community. And it keeps the money in the economy. The reality is, is when you attract people who are just coming in to the country, doing some work and then leaving, the money is pretty much going with them too. If you can keep people in your in your community, then they're spending the money in your community and they're starting new businesses and they're doing new things. So, so that's the thing I would try to just change that whole mindset of how it's been and, and let's look at new ways of doing things and ways of keeping people in our communities and keeping them employed. Great. And um, so uh, the, the other one um, I'm wondering too is, um, do you do you guys work on these the stuff uh, related to rural broadband challenges and things like that? We know that's another uh, economic and social development constraint in a lot of what we see on the rural side. Yeah, of course, that's 
that's a huge issue. And uh, interestingly, and I'm not sure if it's still the case, but early on in the pandemic, when everybody was going online, um, they could actually see that um, speeds and access was improving in urban areas, but decreasing in rural areas. So they were, it seemed, sacrificing what rural communities had for the betterment of the urban. I'm hoping that has changed. Um, we are involved in a stakeholder group that's um, working to bring the issues of rural broadband to the forefront. Um, and of course, there's been a lot of uh, announcements lately out of governments. The federal government has announced a huge broadband strategy um, and other provincial governments like Ontario have also uh, announced big investments in broadband. So, so hopefully our province will follow suit. Um, but the interesting uh, conundrum we face is a lot of community councils don't really understand how important broadband is because in, in a lot of cases the you know local government has high-speed internet access due to the supernet that was put in so they don't really get the fact that their businesses right next door don't have that same access and are really struggling so sometimes um you know because counselors are faced with things like oh we need a new road or we need a new this and it's things that are right in their face today. They're not thinking about those bigger problems and not putting access to broadband as a as an important, um, you know, uh, priority. So then it, it doesn't get to the um, bigger funders like the province and the federal government as quickly. But, you know, I think the whole pandemic has really brought this to a to light faster than it would have otherwise come. Yeah, and and um, we also noticed too, like especially in say like village communities, I might have constraints on that, and they're trying to uh, again because COVID has put so much emphasis on pivoting and and selling wares online and global markets and and such that um, they are sort of they're they're little tiny urban clusters, but they 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 don't have the capacity or interest of you know, the big telecoms looking to, you know, um, put in that infrastructure. So um, we do notice those challenges as well. And then, of course, if they're looking to attract uh, labor and immigration into these communities, they don't have the broadband to to even entice them. So um, to to put in that development uh, effort on marketing and those things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I would add to that, yes, it might um, we might need some incentives from government to get the telecoms to to invest in the infrastructure. But the reality is, is it's going to pay off in spades by increasing economic development. And then ultimately, if our communities grow, they many of them will become economical for these service providers. So it's, you know, some it's got to start somewhere, but um, with with a bit of investment and it looks like governments are starting to be interested in that, um, we can get the ball rolling. OK, and um, so uh, so one more question on broadband, just because we have a we have a pretty big interest right now is that we've we've now put a concerted effort into developing a rural broadband strategy within Wheatland County. Uh, so we, we have active um, staffing looking at this and developing uh, strategy. Do you have through RDN um, with your fee for services, do you have 
um, supports or things like that that you could layer in through your own experiences with these challenges um, supports too. Yeah, we, we are not uh, an expert by any stretch, but um, I would encourage you to look at joining our little coalition of rural broadband stakeholders because the more voices I think at the table, um, the better. So we're you know absolutely open to anybody joining. Perfect. I have someone I can connect you with immediately on that. Um, <laughs> okay, and then affordable housing. Um, uh, looking at the idea of, again, we have a lot of uh, um, hamlets, so they're urban areas that could, you know, accommodate different housing types. Um, and then um, uh, with those different housing types, if we can get um, some affordable different types of options, um looking uh, i'm wondering with affordable housing do you see um uh with developments do you see another layer like you were talking about the social to economic integration how they work together and one doesn't work well without the other do you see how um if you look at an affordable housing uh concept in a community do you see sort of something bubble up behind it on the economic development side so perhaps new retail because there is a bigger catchment for um, just residents. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the more affordable housing you have, the more businesses you can support because often businesses won't open because they can't find any suitable staff, especially a larger one. Um, and you you often hear about businesses buying housing and then um, letting their staff live there. So there, there's there's opportunities on different levels. One, just having those affordable places to live. I mean, when we think about it, a lot of those retail um, and frontline kinds kinds of jobs are, are pretty low paying. They're minimum wage or not much more. So those people can't necessarily afford to buy a house. So they need a place to rent and they don't want to be spending thousands of dollars on rentals. So, so there's that aspect, but then there's also the whole aspect of having, having more businesses, um, which you can put as part of those affordable housing. So there's different kinds of affordable housing. There's more the kinds for people who need cheaper housing because they're employed, but there's also the type of housing that's going to support people with stronger needs. So, if you can bring in a group of people, um, you can bring in the supports and services. And a, a really simple example is when you have a, a seniors complex in your small community. Well, if you have a bunch of seniors living there, then you need a whole bunch of supports and services. And if you need a bunch of supports and services, you bring in a bunch of people who can provide those. Many of them are professionals. They move to your community. They're buying houses. They're renting places like it's you know, economic growth. So if seniors can do that, any kind of residence that's going to attract uh, newcomers of any kind, um, new people to your community, um, is going to stimulate um, investment as well, because there's going to be people who see that as an opportunity. There always are. Okay. And um, so if I'll pose this question to you, because I, I hope you have an answer for this, but uh, I'm wondering if if a community a rural community is looking at economic sector focuses where do you see affordable housing uh strategy and and uh development which sectors do you think are the most advantageous to have that as part of the mix 
Okay, so I'm I'm gonna disappoint you because uh -oh. one of the things we've really come to decide is that communities they spend a lot of time planning, right? Everybody's making a plan for this and a plan for that. But it's really hard, and especially the smaller the community, to actually implement all those plans. So frankly, a lot of times plans get made um, and they don't get implemented or they start to get implemented and they get abandoned and there's all sorts of problems. So, so we really want to advocate that you look at the whole community, all of that social, economic, environmental, as one thing. So you don't sector things out. That's the sim that seems like it's simpler because you know you can focus on this or you can focus on that. But you really need to build a plan that looks at everything. And then you can have little plans to develop each thing. But we really feel that holistic approach to rural community development is what's needed. And in fact, we've started working with a community in Ontario to do just that. Um, it's called Hornpain. It's in the geographical heart of Ontario. Um, it's a community that since 1991 has lost 40% of its population. Um, and they had, they were doing well economically at one point, but now they're really struggling. Um, but they've decided they're gonna do things differently. So we're working with them. They've got a very engaged council, a very engaged community um, to, to really look at how we can do it in a much more you know, holistic way to revitalize the entire community to figure out what we need to tackle first, what's going to make the most sense, um, and really keep the community engaged because they're going to see these these wins and these changes along the way, which um, again, we're hoping will snowball into more and more things. So there's no sector. I don't want to say a sector. I want to say it's part of your whole community plan, especially if you're a small community. Okay, great. And then um, I'm going to see if there's any questions from anybody attending the conversation. So I'll put it out to uh, see if there's anything out there for questions. Okay. <laughs> so um, so it has, has there been anything that you've seen um, because like I've known you a number of years through the, the ARDN and now into RDN, is there something that you really um, have seen over the over the time of, of the organization that you're really super proud of? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah that, that there's lots of things, but I think, you know, we had never started out thinking we would be doing things like addressing homelessness or um, building affordable housing. Honestly, those things would have never even crossed my mind. I, I didn't know there was such a thing as rural homelessness when I started in 2009. So I think the fact that we were able to take these big issues on and, and start to make a real difference um, has been really exciting for us. Um, managing all the federal funding for rural and remote homelessness has really um, helped us to make an impact on communities, bring that problem to light and really start to do some things to address it. Um, and the sustainable housing initiative, you know, as, as I said, it was started by a, a volunteer and um, we were told like by CMHC that it was almost impossible to build affordable housing in a small community because there just wasn't the capacity. And if you question that, you just have to think about the city of Edmonton um, 10 years ago, and they have a whole team of people working on affordable housing. That's a division. 
Um, 10 years ago, they said they were going to build a thousand affordable housing units in Edmonton, and, and I think they're around 250. Um, and so they're only at 25% of their goal. So if a big community like Edmonton with a whole team of people and all its resources can't achieve its goals, how can a small community do that, right? So, so the fact that we've created this guide and, and actually started to build affordable housing and, and we've seen a, an investment in building affordable housing of over $100 million um, over the last couple of years, like that's, that's, that's a really big impact. And, and we know that um, the more that gets built, the more that will get built. Because as communities see other communities having success, they'll be more willing to do it. I mean, it's always hard when you're the first to take that risk. And the Banff YWCA, where they were our very first project, um, Steve Crotty, who worked with us since day one, has a, a hilarious story of how I've caused him to drink a lot of wine and get a lot of gray hair. Um, but um, they didn't have two nickels to rub together as an organization to build affordable housing. And yet today they're building a fully funded and financially sustainable, net zero, beautiful affordable housing project. So, like I said, they took the chance. It was hard. It was a new process for us. But uh, now that we've been through it a few times, it gets easier and easier. And we can point to successes, which means other people will go, oh, OK, if they can do it, so can we. Hopefully. <laughs> nice. Right on. Um, so so is there anything else you want to add to to this? Um, uh, do you, um, I guess because we do this in podcasts, too. Uh, if you can just talk about your contact information, website, that kind of thing. Oh, sure. So we have a new website at ruraldevelopment.ca, um, which you can go to to learn about our initiatives and to see who who we, you can contact. We have a, a, a ever-growing team. Um, I like to point out that when we started, even with some funding, we only had about five or six staff. We're now up to 17 um, plus some part-timers and contractors, um, and we seem to be growing, um, but it's because of the work we're doing with different communities. We're always looking um, for ideas, uh, if people wanna try to work with us, if communities have an issue. I, I can't say we can help for sure, but we're certainly willing to, to look at the possibilities. And one of the things um, we like to do, because we know communities have limited resources, is if possible, try to help you find the money to pay for whatever it is we're going to embark on. So that's that's a really important feature. And, th and that's one of the most important things we do for building affordable housing. Um, we help with a lot of the business case and the needs assessment work to figure out, you know, what the situation is and what you need to build. And then we help people find that funding so that they can actually afford to do it. So we'll, we'll do our best to work with you if you come to us with an idea. Um, not always going to help you, but uh, hopefully we can, or, or we can point you at somebody who might be able to. So yes, and you can reach me. Um, uh, easiest way is info at ruraldevelopment.ca um, on my cell, or, or, on, or uh, yeah, or on my cell. But uh, yeah, just look on the website. Perfect. Excellent. Um, great. Um, I think that's all I have. I mean, we, we could we could talk on this topic or these topics for for hours but um i'd like to thank you deanne for for uh attending this conversation and um 
yeah, I just I I I'm I'm so glad you've had so much success with RDN and and having it grow and supporting communities and people. So I do appreciate your time today for uh, for talking with us and uh, yeah, hopefully we can do it again. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. It's been a lot of fun. Although, you know, it was a lot to pack into a short amount of time. <laughs> yes, for sure. Awesome. Thanks again. Thank you.